Please pray with me. Father, give us faith. Open our eyes to see the glories of the resurrection of your Son. Amen. I was 19 years old. I actually still remember where I was. I was 19 years old when this story of Mary Magdalene first caught my attention. It wasn't that I didn't know it before. I knew the story, but it never like grabbed me in the gut and in the heart. But there was a moment reading this story as a 19-year-old when her grief just grabbed hold of me. Mary Magdalene. This is a woman that earlier in her life, before she met Jesus, had been utterly broken. She was demonized. She was tormented. She was likely abused and outcast, lonely and afraid, full of self-loathing, full of the belief that nobody would ever look at her and want to be close to her, as broken as a person can be. But then she was set free. There's this moment when this man, Jesus, looks at her. He looks at her with kindness and love, and he looked at her with compassion, and he set her free. He banishes the demons. He lifts the torment from her shoulders, the anguish, the self-hatred, and he brings her into a circle of men and women who will love her and who will protect her. And he begins to teach her with those others what it means that God loves her. He begins to actually show her the kindness of God. And the language that John uses so frequently, the light of God shone on her. And it brought life to a woman who up to this point had lived her entire life in the shame-filled shadows of death. She was set free. And so she puts all her hopes in this man. She banks everything on him. She gives him all her money. She follows him wherever he goes. He, she listens to him. She obeys his every word. She is, he is sun and moon to her. And unlike the charlatans that are so common in the world, Jesus doesn't take advantage of her. Instead, this vulnerable woman who cast herself at his feet, he protects her. He loves her. He guides her. He leads her close to God the Father. And you can imagine that for a couple of years, it's like the whole universe is tilted on its axis because everything that Mary had known, shame and fear and hatred and darkness, is replaced by light and joy. For a couple of years, all is right with the world. But then he's killed. He's killed in the most egregious act of injustice that the world can ever see that the world has ever seen. Can you imagine her fear and grief as she watched him be accused? As she watched him be beaten? Can you imagine her looking at Jesus as they beat him and crying, screaming out, no, this isn't right. It's not true. That's not what he's like. He doesn't deserve this. 
Can you imagine her grief, her anguish? She tears at her hair, scratches her face, screams and cries because everything that she had is being destroyed and it's wrong. It's unjust. He doesn't deserve this. She's a desperate woman at this point, full of fear and grief and desperation. The only person who ever loved her is being brutally murdered in front of a mocking crowd. People spitting on him, cursing him, slandering him. And she's sitting there watching all of her hopes pouring out of her through her tears. And so she stands near the cross, clinging to Jesus' mother and Jesus' aunt, clinging to Clopas' wife. All the men but John have fled away, but she stands there clinging to the other women and weeping because Jesus is sun and moon to her. She has nowhere else to go. He's all the hope that she knows in his life is pouring out of him. And so she clings to the other women as she watches, and she weeps. We find her on the third day, still weeping. She's the first to the tomb as soon as the Sabbath is over. Just give me the honor of washing his corpse. She's the first there. She's the first to get back to the other men with the news Someone's stolen his body. I don't even get to wash his body and anoint it. Even after they come back and Peter and John leave, she stayed there in what she's still doing, weeping. Because everything that was life and love to her has been extinguished. And her life is slipping back into the darkness out of which it came. She weeps outside the tomb standing amidst the broken remains of a shattered life. There is no hope left in the world. All is evil and all is dark. I don't know what prompted her to look into the tomb again. What she saw there should have stirred something inside of her, a memory, something that would have made sense for a Jew. Because there on a flat piece of stone, there's an angel at one end and an angel at the other. And it looks suspiciously like the covering of the ark. The place called the mercy seat, where God meets with man. There's a little hint there, but her eyes are still too full of tears and anguish to see it. And so she ducks back out of the tomb, weeping still. She turns away from it and she sees a man. And the tears, the anguish is still so deep in her eyes that she sees him, but she can't recognize him. This guy must be the guy who takes care of the garden. And you can hear her pain as she said to him, where have you taken him? Just give me his body. Can I not have that? If you'll take my love, my Lord, my light from me, could I at least have her body? His body, could I at least anoint it and take care of it so it's buried with honor? This gardener, the one who actually is a gardener, the one who planted that very first garden in the land of Eden, and the one who plants the last garden full of trees of life and the new Jerusalem, 
This garden, gardener looks at her and he preaches the very shortest sermon in the history of the world. It's one word. He simply says her name, Mary. He says her name. That was all that she needed, simply for Jesus to say her name. She didn't need a theological discourse. She needed to hear Jesus simply to say her name. Mary and Clopas, those other disciples on the walk to Emmaus, they needed a full exposition of the scriptures. Thomas, the skeptic, he needs to see the wounds. He needs to put his hands in the wounds. Peter, the man who's ashamed of his own failure, needs to be reinstated because of his denial. Mary doesn't need any of those things. She just needs to hear her name from the lips of Jesus. The life that had been broken and then healed and then broken again suddenly begins to be put back together with one word, her name on Jesus' lips. Her name that means Jesus is still there. Her name that means that he's risen, that death can't win. Her name that means that he's still paying attention to her, still loves her, still cares for her. And so Mary responds to the very shortest sermon in the Bible, this one-word sermon, with the very shortest response to a sermon that's ever been given. Rabboni, my teacher, the one that I would listen to and follow forever, the one that I want to base my life upon, the one that can tell me anything and I'll say yes to it. The shortest sermon and the shortest response. Mary, my teacher. It strikes me that some of us may be longing to hear our name spoken by the Lord Jesus. Spoken in a way that reassures us of his love reassures us of the fact that he's actually paying attention to us. Some, like Thomas, might need some more evidence. Some, like Clopas and Mary, might need a theological exposition from the scriptures. But some of you might just say, I just want to hear him speak my name to know that he pays attention to me. Life is full of darkness. Mary's story is deeper in its troth than most of ours. But we understand that life is full of broken dreams. Life is full of pain. It seems sometimes, sometimes we ask it explicitly, sometimes it's just implicit that we just come face to face with the brokenness and we have to say this must be all there is. These wounds must just never be healed. The darkness must just cover everything in the end. Life is full of that sort of darkness. And so we cauterize the wounds in our souls. We cut ourselves off from the potential of joy for fear of being hurt again. We cauterize the wounds in our souls and we set to work making something out of the limited time that we have. But death creeps closer and closer every year. We push it back. We work so hard as a culture to retain our youth through diet, through fitness, through cosmetics. We work so hard to push it back and to keep it at bay. 
But every year, death keeps creeps closer and closer. And in the small bit of time that we have, we desperately try to build something. Something of joy. Something of peace. Something of light. Working as hard as we can to build something that will satisfy us before it's too late. The summer vacation's almost over and it's not been good enough yet. Christmas vacation's almost done and it's not been good enough yet. At the end of the day, we say maybe one day I'll be fulfilled when we get to retirement and I have enough time to do it, desperately trying to satisfy ourselves before it's too late. But it can't work. It won't work. It doesn't work. The reality is, is that we cannot create life, and life is actually what we need. We can't do the work of the Creator, yet there is one who can create life. This is the story of this day, that the Lord Jesus descended into death and hell itself, and rose as a victor on the other side, shattering the power of death, the victor over death, light shining in the darkness, and he actually brings the dead back to life, you and me. He brings the dead back to life when they simply respond to his voice the way that Mary did. That's all it takes to respond to his voice to people who respond like Mary, who simply say, I will listen and follow my teacher. People who respond like Thomas and fall down on their knees and say, you are now my Lord and my God. People who respond like Peter, who simply say, I do love you. All those who respond to his voice, he brings back from the dead, back to life. The resurrection of Jesus his very literal rising up from the dead into new and unending life is offered to every single one of us. It's not a myth or a metaphor. The actual life is offered to us. In light of the resurrection, in light of that offer, our desperate attempts to fix ourselves seem remarkably silly. Our desperate attempts to build a life of joy and peace before death comes and it's too late, all of those attempts can cease because we, on the one hand, are trying to do that which cannot be done, while at the same time, that which we actually need is being offered to us. Very simply, when we say yes to this offer of life, the life that we live now is no longer the end. There is no longer the pressure to fill it with everything that we think that we need. It doesn't have to bear all the weight anymore. In light of the life that's actually offered by the one who conquered death, the life that we live now does not have to be the final fulfillment. It doesn't have to answer every dream because it's not the end. In fact, in hindsight, this life, the one that we live right now, will look the way that an engagement looks after 50 years of marriage. After 50 years of marriage, you look back on the engagement and you cherish it. You're grateful for it. It was a sweet time. 
But nobody says that was the point. Nobody says, I wish I could go back to that period. In hindsight, the life that we're living now is kind of like the short trip from the car to the trailhead when you're about to go on a week-long hike. Do you have to go from the car to the trailhead? Yes. Is it important what you do in those few steps as you cinch your pack and get the map out? Yes. But nobody 75 miles into the trail, well, you might say, I wish I was back at the trailhead by my car, but you get the point. The short walk from the car to the trailhead isn't the point. The glory is yet to come. We work so hard to overload this life with everything we desire, everything that we need, missing that in hindsight we'll realize that this is just the prelude. It's just the prelude. The glory to come will show, overshadow this, that we will say, why did I worry so much? Why did I work so hard? Why was I so troubled when things didn't go my way? My hope today is that we would begin to live in light of the resurrection. To live like we are in between the car and the trailhead, recognizing that the real adventure is yet to come. It matters what we do here. If you walk the wrong direction from the car to the trailhead, you won't get to the adventure to come. It matters deeply what happens here. In an engagement, if you treat it poorly, you can expect the marriage to have lots of junk to work out. It matters here. But my hope is that we would begin to look at the resurrection and say this changes everything. Because the pressure that I put to make this life all can suddenly be lifted off. And the things that matter suddenly change. All this week, I've been caught by the phrase, what would it mean to prepare for the resurrection? To consciously live each day with a thought, will this thing pass through with me? Most of what we do will be laid by the wayside. To go back to the hiking analogy, it's like a person filling their pack with their stereo and their coffee pot and all the things they love and enjoy, and they get to the trailhead and the guide says, drop it. Drop it, drop it, drop it. You don't need any of it. Most of what we do will be cast aside as we enter into glory. The question is, what would it mean to live aimed at that rather than aimed at all the things that we can't take with us anyways? Life is offered. Life that takes away the pressure to create life itself. Life that takes away the pressure to solve everything in the here and now. Life that comes from the hands of one who was killed for us. As you leave today, I pray that you would wrestle with what Jesus is actually offering. And I pray that you would hear his voice as he calls you by name. Amen.